You are listening to the Trinity Presbyterian Church Podcast from Petaluma, California. Here is this week's sermon. Genesis chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. The Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. If we have any woke guests here with us today, I have to warn you of something that may be upsetting to you. We're going to see Adam, a man, defining what a woman is. Today we'll focus primarily on the creation of the first woman and how she complemented the first man. Next week, as I mentioned, I'll return to this passage and have us focus on the institution of marriage more more generally, and we'll study verse 24 in detail. While we will then think in some degree of, of marriage today, I especially will be having us then consider gender. Men and women have been created with both similarities and differences, and our gender is something fundamental to humanity. And so then today we have this opportunity to think about biblical manhood and womanhood. I do know, by the way, I'm not unaware of the more recent transgenderism ideas that would completely think Uh, None of this is actually accurate in any capacity of what I'm going to be telling you about today. I tried to write my sermon uh, not thinking of how they would want me to talk about this, um, but how I would have historically understood this from God's Word. And I will certainly uh, be making some points to say how this is not what transgenderism teaches, uh, but just so you understand where I'm coming from here, I'm coming from... Uh, what I believe God's Word is is teaching us uh, here today. Well, let us begin then first with this idea found in verses 18 through 20, that God makes here for man a helper fit for him. A helper fit for him. You might have noticed verse 18 and verse 20 both have that language. A helper fit for him. This is something we find in Hebrew and Greek at times in the Bible where you've got something said and something said again, and it sort of, it's like it, 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 it brackets a piece of, of truth, a piece of scripture, sort of tells us the topic. So verses 18 and 20 
are bracketed by this idea. It's talking about this idea of God making a helper fit for him. God says here, it's not good for man to be alone. By the way, man there is in Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew word Adam, where you, Adam gets his name Adam, who's basically a human. And so he gets the very creative name of human. Uh, that's his first name. Uh, but uh, uh, here, verse 18 is telling us God's purpose behind the creation of woman. It is not good for man to be alone. Which is interesting after chapter 1, had all of those repeated, God did this and saw that it was good, God did this and saw that it was good, God did this and saw that it was good, and then it was very good. But here you have something in the midst of all that that we're told is not good. At least not yet. Man is alone. And creation will not be complete without the creation of his complement. And ultimately the marriage and family and society that would flow from that creation of woman. In general, it is not good for humanity to be alone. God meant for us to be in relationship with one another, to others, and the, and the fellowship, and the community, and the society that comes from that. Let me make that clear here. Right now, at this point, there is just this single male human. He's all alone on this big planet. As God makes him a wife, that will provide him with companionship. He won't be alone anymore. But realize that's just, that's just the start of addressing this. From their marital union, they will produce offspring. Who will produce offspring? Who will produce offspring? And so on, and so on, and so on. So from a marriage will come a family. And from a family will come families. And from their nations and filling the world with humans. I hear one. That's right. For God to say in verse 18 that it is not good for man to be alone has to have in mind not just having two humans instead of one. Ultimately, have a whole world full of humans in family, community, and society. A world full of image bearers in that. But realize that bigger goal of a world full of humans and community won't happen without God beginning here, making a woman for the man. This speaks to the foundational element of marriage in society. It's a foundational element. Look at where we're at in the Bible. I said chapter 1 was a prologue, right? Remember that? <clears throat> chapter 1 was a prologue, and you get into really the meat of the beginning of the Bible out of Genesis 2, verse 4. So, if you got chapter 1 as a prologue, right here, in the very first chapter of the book, so to speak, God tells us of this fundamental element of human society. This isn't back 30, 40 chapters later. It's right here at the very beginning. Now, yes, I mentioned it earlier. There are some people that God calls to singleness. But in light of this passage, and I think this is generally true, that, that tends to be more the exception than the norm. Too many people today choose to remain single, I, I fear, for wrong reasons. 
And if that's the case, that's not good for them and it's not good for society. Again, there are people who are called to singleness. Some who even desperately desire to be married, and I don't want to be unsympathetic to that. But that doesn't change that we find here at the very beginning an important, beautiful, wonderful thing of the foundational element of marriage. And I'll bring it out next week. It's something that our society as a whole has really begun to disregard. And I don't think we're better off because of it. For God to say in verse 18 that it is not good for man to be alone has to have in mind not just these two humans, but everything that will come from it. And we, we need that. Our culture, then, needs a renewed vision for the institution of marriage. Again, I said I wasn't going to talk a lot about marriage, but more next week, but I'm going to be bringing out parts of it all the way here today, too. So, all verse 18 tells us of, of God's purpose and his plan to create a match for Adam. Verses 19 through 20 then, then shows us how God first brings animals to Adam. God first brings all these animals to Adam. He brings them before Adam, sort of prays them before Adam in a sense. And what does Adam do? Adam looks at each of those animals. He inspects each of those animals. He names each of these animals. A little side note there. Adam naming those animals is part of the image of God in man, in humans. The reviewing and the naming of things becomes an act of dominion. It even reflects God. Remember what God did in Genesis 1. We saw in Genesis 1 God naming all the high-level items. He, he names day. He names night. He names the heavens. He names the earth. He names the seas. But God sets his image bearers over these various earthly creatures and has us name them. That's pretty wonderful. And it's a reflection of the image of God when Adam is going around naming these things. It's an exercising of authority. After Adam names all these animals that God brought before him, it becomes very clear there's not a match for Adam. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us God's reason for waiting to create the female and having Adam first inspect all the animals and see that there wasn't a match. We're not told that. Why God did it that way? But I have at least a little bit of a theory. Because I notice all the joy that comes from Adam when he's finally presented with his bride. Maybe God's purpose here was that Adam would appreciate Eve all the more when at first he didn't have her. And maybe it's also to remind us that our spouse is ultimately God's blessed provision for us. At the Sweetheart's Dinner, I quoted that proverb, a man who finds a wife finds a good thing and receives favor from the Lord. It's a great blessing. I, I, I know today that when individuals are single but are seeking a spouse, it requires patience. And you do have all the more joy when you are finally married. Uh, this sort of thing is surely behind God's purpose here. That would serve to further heighten our appreciation of marriage when we think of the anticipation aspect and the subsequent joy when it finally happens. Or to take that as an application, marriage, getting married, getting married is something 
to actively pursue, and yet even as you actively pursue it, should it happen, it is ultimately God's provision. So I've seen both aspects there. So then after looking for a match, God is needed to intervene to create the first woman. As these opening verses tell us, God makes for the man a helper fit for him. A helper fit for him. That description of a helper fit for him is emblematic of a point I'll keep making throughout today, which is, in marriage, the man is to be the head of the woman. He's to be the leader in the marriage. But in marriage, there is a fundamental dignity and worth of both man and woman. So while that headship involves that a form of authority of the man over the woman, it's never to be in a way that demeans or degrades or debases the woman. We'll see that taught throughout this passage. And I think even the description, helper fit for man, we see both in there. Both of their both those concepts are in this language, helper fit for man. What do I mean? Well, the, the headship idea can be found in this language that God made a woman for him, for Adam. One fit for him. What am I getting at here? Uh, we find this, I, I, I believe you can get it just from here, but we find it explained to us in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 9. It says that man was not created for woman, but woman for man. And 1 Corinthians 11 says that's part of the reasons why we affirm this idea of, of male headship in marriage. That the man's to be the head in the marriage because the woman is made for man and not the other way around. 1 Corinthians 11, 9. At the same time, this idea of God making a helper fit for him also affirms the common dignity and common worth of both man and woman. Notice that language of fit, fit for him, fit. Um, the language of fit, it's the idea that the woman is a proper match for the man. That there's something corresponding between the two. This is the idea we sometimes refer to when we talk about men and women differences in roles. We talk about them being complementary. There's a complementarianism here. They're fit for each other. The woman and the man are complements to each other. They're not identical creatures, but when they come together, they realize their full potential. Think of a bolt and its corresponding nut. They don't do as much together but they have different threads. So they correspond and come together to fulfill a common purpose. Man and women are fit together, which expresses their common dignity and worth. There's a fit aspect here. Remember chapter one. Chapter one said that, that humanity was to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. They cannot do that without each other. You have this one male human that starts it all out here, he could never have fulfilled what God told him to do in chapter 1 by himself. Same is true if it had been the other way around, right? One woman would not have been able to fulfill that either. Only together could they be realized 
as these two complementary pieces come together. So male headship should not treat the woman as lowly. They're fit for each other. And the same idea of a common dignity and worth should be understand here when, he, when it says that the woman is a helper. Now, unfortunately, I think this description of a woman as a helper is lost in translation. Some chauvinists use this idea of helper to treat their wife like some lowly servant. And some feminists hear that word helper and they think it's just another example in their mind of the Bible demeaning the role of women. Neither is true. People can hear helper in English and mistakenly think it's describing, at best, something like, she's your personal assistant. It's not what this is. That's not at least how the Hebrew would have you to think of this. In the rest of the Old Testament, almost entirely, this word helper is used to refer and describe God. And the way God comes to the aid and help of his people when they're facing some big challenge or some powerful enemy that they can't beat on their own. This word here for helper in Hebrew is a word of strength. Husbands, see how valuable your wife is. This language of helper is not saying she is some pawn to keep busy. It's more like saying she's your ace in the hole. This isn't a word of weakness. It's a word of strength. When this verse calls your wife a helper, it doesn't demean her, it exalts her. The analogy I kept thinking about was like in The Lord of the Rings. Like the book movie. And, and the good guys are fighting some huge evil army and they're losing the battle and hope seems like it's fading and then what happens all of a sudden Gandalf shows up with some huge army of reinforcements to save the day your wife is like those reinforcements at least that's the kind of imagery this Hebrew word does. this word that's the kind of language this word is in Hebrew this exalts the role of your wife. Let's turn now to our second point and observe another new song. Remember last chapter, chapter one, we got a song, a new song when mankind was created. Here we got another song in verse 23. Adam's response to God making a woman for him elicits this short, sublime poetry, which is why I mentioned that I, th I think we were right to see joy coming from Adam here at this point. Write the song! This song is poetically describing this unique act of creation, where God took the man's rib or, or, or side and somehow churned it into, into a woman. This poetic interlude here in the narrative conveys that, that joy of marriage, it implies praise for God, who, 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 who made them. If at all it sounds, how in the world could God make a woman out of a rib? I mean, how in the world could God make any human out of a little tiny sperm and egg? 
And that's a natural process. Whereas this is here a supernatural beginning. So God can do great things. I might note that this song here in verse 23 has implications for marriage. We'll see that next week when I dig into that more and look at verse 24 because it's got the word therefore, which refers back to what came before it. But if you're just in verse 23, realize that right now what verse 23 is celebrating is really even more basic than marriage. It's singing of the creation of, of man and woman. Interestingly, this is not only the, another place you sign to lose it in translation. This is not the only, this not only is the first place in the Bible where the word woman appears, it's actually the first place in the Bible that the word man it appears as well. Now, let me clarify what I mean. Up to this point, if you've been reading in English, every time you might have seen the word man, it was that Hebrew word Adam, Adam, which, as I mentioned, is really more of a generic term for human. Genesis 1 said that there was Adam created male and female Adams, basically. So, so that's more of a generic term. Here, now in verse 23, you have the more generic words for man and woman male and female, man and woman, that are introduced for the first time in the Bible. Some contexts will even translate these words as husband and wife, given the context. So uh, it's not that Adam wasn't a man, by the way, before the wife was made, but uh, the need to distinguish didn't come until here. So then the Hebrew word for man and woman has a similarity where we find in English, where you can see a common root. In, in Hebrew, you can have a little Hebrew lesson along the way here, by the way. In Hebrew, the word for man and woman is ish, that's man, and isha is woman. Ish, isha. Ish, isha. So you see there's a similarity in the roots there. That's how uh, a woman out of man, ish, isha. All this is to say that the song of verse 23 again expresses both difference and similarity between man and woman. Even as those names, Ish and Isha, express both difference and similarity. The similarity is found in the language of verse 23, when Adam says, this is now bone of my bone, and flesh of my flesh. Adam, I think, is, is making a literal statement here. Eve is literally one flesh with him. And we're talking about before consummating the marital union. He, she's, she's literally of him. He's acknowledging that physical connection and unity. They have a oneness, a sameness, despite their differences. The New Testament again reflects on that idea in the broader context of the institution of marriage. For example, Ephesians 5, verse 8 says, Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, as their own flesh. And it goes on there, it says, No one hates his own flesh. They, they nourish their flesh, they cherish their flesh. And, and, and Ephesians saying, Therefore, take care of your spouse, treat her like you would treat her yourself. And so that's, the, again, now coming back to Genesis, we're reading Ephesians back here into Genesis. We see that, that man and woman are the same flesh and, flesh and bone. So there is no place for Adam to treat Eve harshly. There's no place 
for Adam to demean Eve in some way. To do that would be to treat himself harshly. To do that would be to demean himself because she is of him. That's the point that Ephesians helps us to bring out. If that's true for marriages going forward, it's certainly true right here with Adam and Eve. So we can also then find some of the differences. I mentioned some similarities. We can find some differences here between man and woman in this song of verse 23. Those differences, again, are part of what, what the Bible uh, speaks of what calls for male headship, male leadership in, in marriage. Um, and, and as we'll mention, other contexts as well. One of those differences is that the woman was taken out of the man and not the other way around. Verse 23 has that, right? Woman is taken out of man, not the other way around. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 8, takes that truth and again makes application of it and says that's another reason for male headship in marriage. It says, 1 Corinthians 11, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. So it makes an application there to male headship. Now, 1 Timothy 2.13 takes that idea and makes an application to the church leadership. Again, there it puts it in terms of Adam being made first, then Eve, which is also what 1 Corinthians 11 talks about. But there it makes an application to church leadership. And it's why the church has historically only practice male ordination of pastors, elders, and deacons because of passages like this, taking these principles from Genesis and making applications to situations like marriage and like church leadership. I would note 1 Corinthians 11, after talking about this point, does remind that while the first woman came out of man, after that every man have come out of a woman. And so there is still a mutual dependence, as we'll bring out today more next week, having aspects of male authority, we have to be very careful to not abuse that and think, as that authority, you're somehow better. No, there's a mutual dependence of man and woman together. And 1 Corinthians 11 can make that point, even while not getting rid of the idea of male leadership. We also see man exercising authority over the woman here by continuing that work of naming that he did earlier in the passage. Remember, uh, he had the animals, he named them. I mentioned that was an expression of the image of God and really a role of dominion and authority. Here he names her woman. Didn't need a special biological or sociological degree to do it. He named her woman. Next chapter, We'll see Adam even gives her the specific name of Eve. Lots of fun to talk about when we get to that point. Uh, but this idea of naming someone is a form of exercising authority uh, that we actually find still expressed today in the, in the common practice of, of a wife taking her husband's last name. While that's not as common anymore of a practice, but that is sort of behind that same idea. So then this song about a man and a woman reminds us that while there are similarities, there are also differences between male and female. While not exhaustive, the Bible, along with the light of nature, 
does teach us various aspects of these differences. And before I mention some, let me say that sometimes we get in trouble because we want to sort of definitively state masculinity is this and only this, and femininity is this and only this. And I think we have to be a little more careful and nuanced in that. Even the Bible itself acknowledges the differences of man and woman, but certainly doesn't put it in a absolute exactly, this is how it always looks, and this is how it always looks. But there's a lot we can glean about the differences in the Bible, along with the light of nature. And so I will present some of those things we might glean from it, not to be understood in all cases as an absolute, but certainly as a general picture of some of those differences between man and woman. So, what are some of those things we find? Well, there are physical differences. And some of these, by the way, are more absolute than others, right? Um, there are physical differences. Women give birth, men do not. Men generally have greater physical strength than women, 1 Peter 3, 7. I would say this is maybe a little bit more of Reed's way of saying it. Women are more outwardly beautiful than, than men. And um, maybe that's a reflection on men, that men tend to notice outward beauty more. But what you do find addressed or sort of touched on in the Bible is that there's this recognition of the outward beauty of women, even while keeps in driving the exhortation to the women be especially primarily focused on inward beauty. We saw some of that in, in the um, uh, first... Uh, First Timothy 2.9 was one of them. We also saw it in that first Peter passage we read earlier today, too. But first Timothy 2.9-10 makes a similar uh, application. Uh, the defense of, 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 of me saying I think women are more outwardly beautiful. Think of English. There's that old language, the fairer sex. I think I think mm -hmm. women tend to be more outwardly. Anyways. Um, the Bible speaks of how men and women are supposed to dress differently. That'll get you in trouble today. Deuteronomy 22, 5, 1 Corinthians 11, those are some examples. The Bible speaks of the important work of women in, in childbearing, homemaking, mothering. Again, I make the point, some are called to singleness, and some even who are married are not called to, to have children. But 1 Timothy 2, 15, Titus 2, 5, Proverbs 3, 1, 1 talks of the great value of child childbearing homemaking and mothering, and our society tends to downplay the value of that, and the Bible says it's, it's a noble thing if God has called you to that. The Bible commends the inner beauty of a woman having a gentle and quiet spirit, and yes, to follow godly male leadership in their lives that such submissiveness can even be part of that inner beauty, 1 Peter 3, 5. And so men are called to be leaders and to aspire to positions of leadership, I like how that language of aspired positions leadership, they're not leaders in every context, but there are certainly things that they can aspire to be leaders in. And you see that in 1 Peter 5, 2, 1 Timothy 3, 1, Ephesians 5, 24, Colossians 3, 21, etc. The Bible, though, commands such leadership by men. That is to be one that is loving, one that is to be sacrificial, one that is to be understanding, one that is to be not domineering but rather to be exercising servant leadership that honors the people under their care. Ephesians 5.25, 1 Peter 3.7.5.3, Matthew 20.26. I've given you more scripture references than I might normally do, sort of to inspire you to go and, and look up more of these topics. 
And again, just to bring it out, you don't have to be married uh, to embrace your gender because you're a male or you're a female before you're married. And if you outlive your spouse, if you get married, you're still male or female. So there's application to try to think through what does this look like in every context and circumstance of my life. And so this is, again, sort of a superficial glimpse of some of these differences between men and, and women. And I hope it's reminded you that those differences are supposed to be good. If you don't think that they're good, maybe you've had some bad role models who didn't do a good job of exemplifying the differences. Certainly, historically, men have too often perverted their leadership, even while women have too often subverted it. Or it may be that the culture has lied to you so much about this that it's become hard for you to think biblically about a topic like this, you know, whether it be radical feminism or chauvinism or more recently all the transgenderism ideas who they try to say science says otherwise and science does not say otherwise. Um, there's, there's a lot of voices out there that are trying to get you to think differently about all this stuff. But I pray that you'll be spurred on today to continue to study what God's Word says on this, as well as the light of nature has to contribute uh, to masculinity and, and femininity and the, the differing roles of men and women, depending on, on the context and, 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 and the circumstances. May that be an application then for you to really embrace what God has made you to be. And if you have someone in your life who is struggling in that area, to be able to help them to affirm what it is that God has actually made them, male or female. Well, it, it, in conclusion, I, I'd like to wrap up our message for today about men and women by pointing out how in verse 25 it says they are both naked but not ashamed. And we'll see next chapter how that will change when they sin. They'll sin against God. Their eyes will be opened even to the consequences of that. It will result in what? That they will try to hide. Hide even from God. Adam will even turn against Eve. That woman you gave me. In other words, in today's passage, God had said it was not good for man to be alone. And yet after sin, they'll essentially be back alone again. But this time it's not just a human alone from another human, but mankind alone from God. As he tries to hide from God. is not the purpose God intended for man. And yet, while man there, after sinning, tries to be alone from God, tries to hide from God, we'll see then that God would come after them. And that was only only beginning of God coming after mankind to save the people out of sin. God would come after mankind again in the second Adam. While the woman here is taken out of the first Adam, the second Adam would be made to come forth from a woman, even the womb of the Virgin Mary. God would come to man in Jesus Christ to save us from our sins so that we would be reconciled to God, 
That we would not be separated from God, but in fellowship with God. Because indeed, it is not good for man to be alone from God. As we said last week, the ultimate fruition of that will come in the age to come. When God comes down to dwell with us in a new creation, in a new Eden-like paradise, where God and his saved humans will be together forever. This future is ours for all who have turned and put their faith in Jesus for salvation and eternal life. Well, while we await that future, Christ Jesus, in the meantime, has us, his church, here on this earth. Recognize the way that we see today's message true in the church on earth here today. On the one hand, the church on earth has a unity that both men and women have in the church in Christ. As Galatians 3.28 says, in Christ there is neither male nor female. There is a unity that we have in Christ, or we read it in 1 Peter, where men and women both can be heirs of eternal life through faith in Christ Jesus. That gets at the unity that we have. But that does not mean that there aren't still differences to appreciate yet in the church between men and women. Because while Paul can say that, that, that there's neither man or woman in Christ Jesus, he goes on and talks a lot about men and women in the church. For example, Titus 2, he spends a whole chapter addressing men and women separately. Or 1 Timothy 5 speaks of how having men and women in the church means that we're one big family and that we, we treat each other as fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers. Malachi 2 and 1 Corinthians 7 would even tell us one of the ways we are to look to grow the church is to looking to have and raise godly offspring by godly marriages in the church. That's still more about outreach, guys. Church expansion. The various differences that men and women bring into the church are to be a good blessing for the church. As a man, I can personally testify that our, our little church here is far better off because of all the women that are here. Mm -hmm. May we each Embrace the gender God has made us to be and be learning more how to live that out now and under the Lord. Lord God, we thank you for bringing us your church together. We thank you for each of the men and women here, each of the boys and girls here. We pray your blessings on each, on our church family. We ask that you would continue to grow our church family. Would you pray for numerical growth? We also pray, Lord, that you would grow us in maturity in a family as, as we are as, as Christians here. That we'd be growing spiritually. Indeed, to understand better how to live as a man of God or as a woman of God, to your glory and praise. And so we pray together in the name of the Lord Jesus, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. 
and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.